This morning we are continuing on in our series, His Name Shall Be, looking at the passage in Isaiah chapter 9. This is really a, a prophecy that comes through Isaiah. It's really a birth announcement. It's the hope of what is to come in Isaiah chapter 9. And if you remember, as we have walked through this series, we talked about how the Assyrians were coming, that there was, there was a, a, a nation that was coming. They had destroyed the northern tribes, and now they were coming to Judah. They were coming to Jerusalem, and they were going to destroy the Judites as well. And in chapters 7 and 8 in the book of Isaiah, we hear that the Assyrians are on their way. And the people of Judah are in big trouble. And then we get to chapter 9, which begins with the word but, or in other versions it says, nevertheless. Something horrible is on the way. Something terrible is coming, nevertheless, even though something terrible is coming, we have a God of hope. And he tells us in Isaiah chapter 9 that the darkness that is to come will one day yield to light, that the joy will be increased just like it is in harvest. Why? Because we read in verse 6, someone is coming, a new king, a new leader is coming. A child is to be born, a son is to be given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Someone is coming to provide a rescue. This rescuer has five names we have talked about. Four that are listed right here, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and one that came earlier in chapter seven, Emmanuel. Those are the names that we're looking at in this series. What does it mean for God to give Isaiah this prophecy, this birth announcement? What does it mean for us? And now that we know the Messiah has come in Jesus, what does it mean for us to look back at this prophecy in the Old Testament and put Jesus in there and see how do these names apply to him. We looked two weeks ago at the term wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor is exactly what it might sound like, a trusted advisor, one who, one who is unbelievable in awe and incomprehensible in his counsel, in, in the awe of his counsel. That Jesus is a wonderful counselor for us in the fact that he came to undo what had been done by the evil counselor Satan in the Garden of Eden. The evil counselor tempted Eve and Adam, and when he did that, sin entered into the world. When Adam and Eve took the fruit that they were told not to eat, sin entered into the world. And Jesus, the wonderful counselor, brings redemption into the world. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, advising the Father, interceding on our behalf, giving counsel to God. Last week we talked about 
the term mighty God, the name mighty God. We talked last week about how, how in the Old Testament we have lots of pictures of a mighty God and lots of ways that he shows his power and shows his might. Lots and lots of unbelievable stories where God is mighty and powerful. But Jesus, as he comes on the scene in the New Testament, has might and power, but uses it in different ways than the God of the Old Testament does. He doesn't use his mighty godness in that same way. He doesn't call fire from heaven or confuse armies into self-destruction. He doesn't bring plagues on his oppressors and doesn't part the Red Sea. Jesus uses his mighty godness for reconciliation and restoration. Jesus is about redemption and making broken things whole. Jesus redefines power. And one of the best places that we can see that and the best places that we can understand that is in Philippians chapter two. This is what Paul writes for us in Philippians. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. He, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus uses his mighty godness to point to point to God the Father to point to the glory of God. He redefines power and uses his mightiness so that we might better see and know and understand the glory of God and that we might be reconciled to that. So today, we look at Everlasting Father. How is it, how is it that a child to be born is everlasting? And how is it that a son that is given is a father? How do we put those things together? How do we reconcile those terms for the Messiah? Part of what I have been trying to do in this series is I have been trying to intentionally navigate the fine line between understanding the roles of the Trinity. As we look at these Names, as we look at these titles that are given to the Messiah, there's some overlap. There's some overlap as we look at them. There's, there's different, distinct parts to the Trinity that each have their own roles. And what I'm trying to do in the midst of this series is not, is not, mix them. I don't want to blur the lines. I don't want you to, to walk away thinking that we have one God who just wears different hats or different costumes in different moments, because that's not true. 
There are three distinct persons. There are three distinct parts to the Trinity, and each of them have their own role. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the counselor for believers. He's the one who dwells in us, who helps us to know the instructions and the commands of God, who helps us to live godliness and live godly lives. And so, how does the Messiah fill the role of wonderful counselor? Hopefully we've looked at that a little bit to understand how that can be true. Mighty God. The Messiah has the title Mighty God, according to Isaiah chapter 9. And yet, there is no one, there is no other God like our God. So how? How can the Messiah, the Son, be the mighty God? Hopefully we've helped you understand that a bit better. The Son, today as we look at Everlasting Father, the Son cannot, the Son cannot be the Father. The Son cannot be the Father. The Son cannot be his own grandpa, according to Ray Stevens. He is the everlasting Father, according to Isaiah in chapter 9. So how do we reconcile all of those things? Jesus provided wonderful counsel, counsel to God and continues to do so now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' mighty power was seen throughout his works. I think the disciples, at the moment that Jesus says in the boat, peace, be still, and the wild storm is instantly calm, I think the disciples had the same feeling that Moses had when the Red Sea was parted and they walked through on dry land. The power was the same. The might was the same. And so today, as we look at Everlasting Father, I want to be clear in this. I, Jesus is not God the Father. But his title as Everlasting Father that we see in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, his title as Everlasting Father helps us to better see his role for eternity and to better understand the work that Jesus did while on earth. When Isaiah announces the son to come shall be called everlasting father. What is the picture? What is the hope? What is Isaiah trying to convey? Let me share that with you this morning. What I think comes out of Isaiah chapter nine. The term everlasting father, this term everlasting father actually translates, those words translate into the term father of eternity, father of all time. This announcement that Isaiah is giving comes generations, generations, long generations from the beginning of time, the creation of the earth. This announcement that Isaiah is giving is 700 years before Jesus is actually born. And so the title that Isaiah is giving to the Messiah, Father of Eternity, is stuck in this moment of time. Generations from the beginning, 700 years from when he'll actually arrive. What is the picture that Isaiah is trying to paint for us? The role 
of everlasting father, the role of father that is talked about here in Isaiah chapter nine. The role that's given here is the role of patriarch, the role of provider, the role of protector, the role of leader, the role of king during this time in the history of Jerusalem. The leader, the one who oversees all of the people, the one who gathers them together. We see that even as we look at verse seven, we see that he is talking, in fact, about how the increase of his government, how there will be peace of no end, how there's a throne of David over his kingdom. We're talking about, we're talking about a father who oversees the entire family. And Isaiah is announcing here that there will come in the future a father and a leader that will never end. He will never falter. He will never grow old. He will never be overthrown. Why is this a big deal? Why is this a big deal in the Old Testament times? Why is this a big deal to Isaiah? Why is this a big deal to the people of Judah and the tribe of Judah? In order to better understand that, I think we have to understand a picture of how the Old Testament the people of the Old Testament lived. We know that God made a promise. God made a promise to Abraham that he was to build a people, that he was going to bless a people in Abraham's family. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. The promise continued through that line. Jacob, if you remember, had, had many sons, and they ended up in Egypt through the story of, of Joshua rescuing, or not Joshua, Joseph rescuing his siblings and his family. They move to Egypt. And then as we jump forward, the people have, have expanded, have, have blown up. They are now slaves in Egypt and Moses comes on the scene and leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea back to the promised land. Moses is their leader at this point. Moses Moses passes on that leadership to Joshua as they, and Joshua then leads the Israelite people, God's promised chosen people, back into the promised land, into Israel. And now that they are, are kind of dispersed amongst the promised land, they no longer have the father of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. They're much larger now. They no longer have Moses as their leader or Joshua as their leader. And so now as they're scattered about, they have moments where they need a leader to take over, to help, to rescue them, to help them, and to lead them. And so there's a cycle. We see it in Judges uh, chapter two. There's a cycle that happens, and I have a, a graph of it on the screen here. The, the people at the top of the screen there, you see that they are, they're, they're, they're worshiping the one true God. They're following after him. There's, there's no need for them to have a, a generational leader. There's no need for them to have a tribe, a leader over everyone, because they're doing what's right, and they're worshiping the one true God. But we don't always do that well. And they begin to disobey, and they begin to sin, and they begin to fall away from God. And as they begin to fall away from God, they start to worship other idols and 
Other gods and other tribes begin to come in and they have more power than the Israelite tribes. And so now there's suffering. Someone is, someone is hurting the Israelite people. Someone is, is, is they, they haven't obeyed what God had called them to do and kicked them out of the land and so now they're suffering. And in the midst of their suffering, they cry out to God. They say, God, you have promised that you would help us. You have promised that you would be there for us. This is our promised land, and you are the mighty God. And so God, as they repent, raises up a leader. And that leader, that judge that we read about in Judges, helps to rescue the people of Israel. We have lots of judges that we read through. There's, there's, there's long stories, there's short stories. There's Samson and Gideon and Ehud and Deborah and Japheth. All judges that we read about in the book of Judges who God raises up to rescue his people. As they're rescued, they celebrate and worship the one true God. You have made a way for us to be rescued. And so they worship for a while. And then they begin to disobey, which leads to suffering, which then leads them to crying out to the one true God who then raises up another judge, another person, another rescuer to lead the people, to help lead the charge. And again, God's people are rescued, which leads them to worship the one true God until they begin to disobey. And you see the cycle happens again and again and again. One of the last judges that comes about is a man named Samuel. Samuel is one of the judges that God has raised up to oversee, to lead the people of Israel, to lead the the Israelites. And we read about in 1 Samuel that the people, that the people now are tired. They are tired of this cycle of judges, God raising up someone, him being a leader for just a short term, short time, and then them falling back into suffering and back into this cycle over and over. And so now they say, we don't want a judge anymore. We want a king. We want a king. And so they cry out to God. The people cry out to Samuel and they say, We want a king just like all the other countries around us have a king. We don't want short-term judges that pop up here and there. We want a monarchy. We want a dynasty. We want a legacy. We want to know that there's someone who's in charge of our people. We want to know that there's someone that will go before us and, and lead the way. We want a king. Samuel tries to convince them that they don't want a king, that instead of a monarchy, they already have a God-led country, a theocracy. But they cry out and say, we want to be like everyone else. We want a king. And so, God does exactly that. He, in fact, says to Samuel, fine, will give the people what they want. And so they get a king. The first king is Saul, who right away does not live up to what God has called him to be. David 
is the second king, then Solomon, and then the line splits. And we have a number of kings. Some of them, some of them are good. Many of them are not. But all of them fail to lead the people the way that God would want them to be led. All of them, all of them, no matter how long their reign, all of them have an end to it. And a new king comes who may be better or may be worse. And so they have to figure out who is going to be their leader and how is he going to lead. And in the end, they all fail. Now here in Isaiah, in the midst of a horrible king, Isaiah is announcing that there is a new father. There's a new leader. There's a new patriarch. There's a new provider. There's a new protector who is coming. This father will never age. His strength will never wane. He will never need to pass his reign on to a lesser descendant. This new king that is to come, this new father that is to come, he will be an everlasting father. There's a different one that is to come, and he will not be like the ones that you have seen in the past. He will not be like the judges. He will not be like the kings. He will be radically different. How radically different? John gives us a picture of it. We're going to skip all the way to the end. What is the picture at the very end of the new leader that is to come, that will take over, that will, that will replace the judges, that will replace the, the line of kings that always failed and never could live up to what God had called them to be. John shows us the promise of that new leader in Revelation. He starts throughout Revelation in chapter 19. First, we see a picture of a of a hero riding in on a white horse. He is the champion. He is the mighty God. He is the leader. And then, here in, verse, in chapter 21, verses five through seven, we read it this way. He says, he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to John, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. There is an everlasting father who is coming. The picture we see of him in Revelation it's the father, the king, the protector, the leader who never fails. He is the grand champion for all times. Jesus, in Revelation 22, says to John as he quotes him, Behold, I am coming, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. He says in verse 13 of chapter 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. Jesus, Jesus is the everlasting Father. He's the one that they had hoped for all the way through. 
The judges couldn't do it. They'd hoped that maybe having a king and a monarchy and a line would do it. That dynasty failed as well. But there's a child to be born, a son to be given, and he will be the everlasting father. He will be the one that lasts forever, and he will do it in the exact right way. In the New Testament times, when Jesus is born, they are hoping, longing. The people are still waiting for that everlasting father to come. When Jesus is born at that time frame, the New Testament people would have loved, would have loved to have a champion ride in on a white horse. But, as we talked about last week, that's not the picture. That's not exactly how Jesus comes. Jesus comes as a baby in a manger. Jesus does not come in a mighty way, but in a meek way. Jesus does not come as a champion, but comes as a servant. So how is Jesus, as he lives, the everlasting father? How does he give us that picture? I think it's pretty clear to us how Jesus gives us the picture of the everlasting father. Father. In fact, he even tells us exactly how he does it. And I want you to look this morning at a couple of passages with me. I want you to actually turn in your Bibles, if you'd have them, or in a pew Bible there, to John chapter 10. We're going to read a couple of passages in John where Jesus tells us exactly, exactly how he shows us the Father. We're going to be in John chapter 10 starting in verse 22. It's page 896, if you're using a pew Bible there. Jesus becomes for us a personal and a perfect representation of the Father, and he tells us about that here in John chapter 10. Beginning in verse 22, it says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Do you hear what they're saying? If you are the one that's to come on the white horse, if you are the mighty one, if you are the everlasting father, tell us that. Verse 25, Jesus answers them, I told you and you do not believe The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then Jesus says this in verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Jews, they hear him say that. They hear him call himself God and they pick up stones in verse 31 to stone him. And Jesus answers them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answer him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, 
make yourself God? Jesus answers them, is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? I'm not doing the works of my Father. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus clearly says, I am showing you the Father. I and the Father are one. And the works that I am doing, they are showing you him. Flip over a couple of pages to John chapter 14. Because he says it again. In John chapter 14, page 901, if you're in a pew Bible this morning. Beginning in verse 5, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Let's back up. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, but believe in me also. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I would go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That you know the way to where, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long that you still don't know me, Philip? And then Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works Then these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus comes and points us to the Father, and in fact says, if you see me, if you know me, you know him. Jesus reveals the perfect fatherness, father likeness of God. He's a perfect representation of God the Father for us. Why does that matter to us? Why does it matter to us that Jesus might be the everlasting Father? It's because we have a broken picture of what real Father likeness or fatherhood is. We have broken pictures of fathers at best. 
at best we often have or we often are, as I convict myself this morning. At best we often have uninterested, disengaged, distant, unloving, and selfish fathers. At worst, we have abusive and harmful and hurtful and missing and absent fathers. The sin of the world has so corrupted everything that we know and understand that we cannot have a right picture of fatherhood, of father-likeness. And so, Jesus comes, and his revelation shows us a father, a father-likeness, who overcomes and refutes the brokenness that has so entrapped our sinful world. Jesus shows us the Father and then helps us. Jesus then helps us to understand the Father's love for us. That's how Paul tells us about it in Galatians. This verse will be on the screen for you to see. In Galatians chapter four, Paul tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, you and I, those of us who cry out in the name of Jesus, so that we might receive adoption as sons because you are sons. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Jesus comes and in his time on earth perfectly reflects the Father to us. In the fullness of time, God sent his son so that he might come and help us to see the love of the Father, to help us to see that we have been brought in, that we have been adopted into the family of God. Jesus is a perfect representation of the Father and shows us his love. And Jesus one day, in the future, will ride in on a white horse and sit on the throne forever as the everlasting, is the everlasting Father, is the everlasting reigning forever King as our only hope, as our rescuer and as our redeemer. He is the everlasting Father and he is our hope. Stand with me this morning as we sing about the Father's love. the sinner been forgiven how has the rebel been made clean or blinded eyes been made to see how have the orphans been adopted 
who hated your love and ran from grace, despised and rejected all your ways. How wonderful the Father's love, the Father's love for us, that He would send His only Son to come and rescue us. He has saved us, called us blameless, guides us now and will sustain us. Oh, how wonderful the Father's love. Your mercy floods our lives with kindness. Your grace has colored all we see. And you have promised not to leave You freely give your spirit to us So we can be sure we're sons of God And rest in the hope of what's to come How wonderful the Father's love, the Father's love to us that He would send His only Son to come and rescue us. He has saved us, called us blameless, guides us now and will sustain us. Oh, how wonderful the Father's love. Our sufferings may fill our lives, we're confident we're heirs with Christ, and so we cry, Abba, Father. The sufferings may fill our lives, we're confident, we're heirs with Christ, and so we cry, Abba, Father. How wonderful the Father's love, the Father's love for us. That He would send His only Son to come and rescue us. How wonderful. How wonderful the Father's love, the Father's love for us. That He would send His only Son to come and rescue us. He has saved us, called us blameless guides us now and will sustain us oh how wonderful the father's love god i am grateful this morning for jesus i'm grateful this morning for the son who came to perfectly reflect for us to perfectly show us the father and I anxiously await. I anxiously await his return as he sits on the throne and leads us from everlasting to everlasting. He was at the beginning and he will be there to the end. He will be there through the end because there is no end. He will reign for all eternity. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. And I long and wait for the day that he will lead us in that way. God, give us hope until then that you might work in us through him 
who has called us into the adoption of sons, the spirit that works in us to help us to know the calling that you've given to us and to work out your purposes in us, that we might rest in that. And now our benediction this morning from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.